Dr. Ethel Tungohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. Welcome to Academic Anties. Today we're talking about the newest animated movie from Disney, Encanto. If you haven't seen the movie yet, be warned, we've got spoilers. Here's the official synopsis of the movie. The Madrigals are an extraordinary family who live in the mountains of Colombia in a charmed place called the Encanto. The magic of the Encanto has blessed every child in the family with a unique gift. Every child except Mirabelle. However, she soon may be the Madrigal's last hope when she discovers that the magic surrounding the Encanto is now in danger. Now, I know you might be wondering, why are we talking about a kid's movie on a podcast about academia? Well, first, it's actually an amazing film. When I was watching it with my kids, I felt extremely moved. I'm an immigrant and could relate to many of the themes addressed in the movie. Plus, I am an immigration researcher. Witnessing the Madrigal's journey, including their experiences with intergenerational trauma, resonates with much of my own research. As I was thinking about the movie and the Madrigal's, I kept wondering about the power of their story. I kept thinking too of some of the criticisms that are circulating about the film. While the movie has gotten great reviews, you can still tell that there were viewers who didn't understand the Madrigal story and were disappointed that the movie didn't fit the conventional Disney story with a hero and a villain. One reviewer even criticized that Encanto didn't follow the quote-unquote rules of true fairy tales. These critics have the platform to express their disdain. But then other viewers, viewers like me, who related so much to the movie as an immigrant with a huge extended family, saw in the movie stories that almost never get told, not in pop culture and most certainly not in academia. Or at least the way these stories are usually told rely on quote-unquote damage-centered research as per the words of indigenous feminist scholar Eve Tuck. And so, also wondering who gets to tell stories of migrant communities, of BIPOC communities, of the stories of equity-seeking groups? And why is it that those of us from these communities who tell these stories, who do research inspired by our own histories, don't get seen as authoritative because we're not objective? With us today are two amazing people uh, who have agreed to go on this deep dive journey with me. We have Natasha Martinez, who is a PhD student in the Department of Politics at York University, and that is Tia Natasha for you. And we have Miriam Gorgis, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Manitoba. She appeared on episode one of Academic Antis. We're so pleased to have you here with us again. That's Amti Miriam. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hey. Thanks for inviting Hi. me back, Ethel. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Well, we, we've we messaged a lot about Encanto, so I just really wanted to kind of create the space uh, to talk about this. Tia Natasha, what did you think about Encanto when you first saw it? Yeah. Um, so first thoughts. Um, like I said, it's a, it was a huge family affair. Um it wasn't a movie initially that I was gravitating to just because it's Disney. It was, you know, cartoon. I didn't really think that I would find anything that would interest me in that. But the more I saw it pop up on social media, um, I saw a lot of TikToks on it about people within the community, you know, talking about like intergenerational trauma um, and what this meant for them watching it as like a family and like a household. Um, so that really kind of got my interest in it. And then my family has seen it like 
more times than they should. So we started, sat, we sat down and watched it, me and my cousin. Um, and right away, like I said, like the diversity was, you know, the first thing that really stuck out for me. I really found that I could relate not only, um, based on like experiences and circumstances, but also like physically, like I feel like I could, you know, identify with like Isabella or, you know, um, my cousin could feel like she identified with Dolores. Um, my brother identified with some of the other characters. So because we're all diverse in and of ourselves within the community, we really found characters that represented us. So those are my initial thoughts. Yes, I, I loved it too. I mean, I, I kept seeing it everywhere on my social media from Ethel, but also from my uh, from my own community. Uh, I think a lot of Assyrians were just commenting on how much they related to that movie, even though we're from the other side of the world. Um, so, um, and so many of them had such, uh, you know, they would post like pictures of them crying at certain scenes. And so I thought, oh man, I really got to watch this. Um, so like, like Auntie Natasha said, it was, it was very different, just even the way the characters looked, obviously from, you know, your usual Disney movies and the way that she was telling the story of her family in the beginning, you know, um, and uh, like Natasha was saying earlier about how, you know, you can really see that intergenerational like family relationship right like i grew up with all of my cousins my cousins <laughs> were like my siblings they are like my siblings we all spend like natasha said way too much time together <laughs> um you know and so we all live in intergenerational households um before migration like even in where where we originally come from we live all together you know so it was just seeing that kind of dynamic as well as opposed to just seeing like a nuclear family type thing that was being portrayed on the screen that I really uh, made me feel like, oh, this is basically like my life. <laughs> For sure. And one of the things that resonated with me was from the very beginning, uh, you see this extended family structure, you see that they all live together, you see that there's a lot of love there. But I think from the moment the characters went on screen, I was like, oh my goodness, look at Mirabelle, right? Like she... Out of all of the Disney princesses, probably um, would look, would resemble uh, my daughters the most. And that, to me, uh, was so revolutionary. And also seeing um, their cousins, right? Like, my my kids have, like, nine cousins, you know? <laughs> like, seeing that is is so refreshing. I was going to say, what stood out to me um, was, like, the matriarchal figure, right? The grandma. And for us, that holds so much weight because... My grandma's the one who came to Canada, right? Um, I should provide context. Like, we're not... Like, the movie's premise in Colombia, but my on my mom's side, we're from Ecuador. My dad's side's from Mexico. Um, but we identify a lot more with Ecuador Ecuadorian culture, which is in South America, right? So even the fact of, like, the focus on the grandmother and, like, leading the family and, you know, her story in, like, this new land um, after her husband passes away you know it really really stuck um with us just because we're like we call my grandma nana we're like nana look you're in the movie that's you <laughs> so we found all types of ways that could really really uh relate to it yeah i think i think for me it was really it wasn't just one character that i identified with every character in the movie i could see not just a piece of me but also of my family like Awea to me was really, um, really just 
uh, depicted like every refugee or every immigrant that was really, really haunted by this fear from that trauma and holding on so tightly uh, to make sure that, you know, their new homes are safe, that their family is safe. And then to make sure that they survive, they're really just in survival mode. And I could really see um, my parents, my parents are like this. And it's not that they're trying to instill a fear in us. It's just that they haven't processed their trauma and they haven't, you know, they, they don't know how to let go of this, this suffocating fear. Uh, my family came over as refugees from what's today called Iraq. We are Assyrian. We are indigenous to uh, northern Iraq, uh, you know. Long before there were wars in our country, we were dispossessed from our own homelands in the making of these countries in what's called today the Middle East. And my parents came over here as refugees and I was born there, but I was raised here. So there's that intergenerational type of I could see myself in Abuela's kids. Mm. So like Abuela's kids, you could see that they told the line that they don't want to upset Abuela or really disrespect her or whatever, because they know she she's done all of this for them even if they don't agree with all of her ways. You could tell, right? Like you could tell Mirabel's mom would be like, she didn't agree with everything Abuela was doing. You could tell in her own way she would try to um, interact with Mirabel differently yep. um, than Abuela was. But you could tell that she didn't stand up to Abuela. And the reason for that, just from my own experiences, is just that, that, that understanding, that appreciation for that character of Abuela that has done and sacrificed so much for us to survive. But then there's that younger generation that comes in. Mm. And I can see that in my younger cousins. They're not, they're not afraid. They are not so toe the line. They are not, they are like Mirabel. Some of them are and some of them aren't. And you see that through Mirabel's siblings. One is working herself to exhaustion, trying to do everything, trying to live up to her gift. The other one is really stifling and suffocating herself in order to be this perfect whatever. And then there's Mirabel who's like, we need to destroy all of this because this is terrible, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I just, it was that it was those kinds of where I could see how trauma had affected each and every one of those generationally that I really saw from from my own lived experiences in my family. I wanted to ask both of you more to unpack that a little bit, right? Because um, I think that gets lost for a lot of viewers, right? A lot of viewers aren't looking at this movie through the lens of trauma. Um, in fact, some people are thinking that if there were to be a villain, it would be Abuela. And so I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts on this and what gets lost if we don't look at the story of the Madrigals from the lens of trauma. Yeah, like I feel in terms of the relationship that Abuela has um, with Mirabel, um, and, and I don't want to use the word love, because, you know, everyone comes in different, every household, right, has different sets of relationships. And there's definitely different types of toxic relationships within um, intergenerational households. But at the same time, I wonder if it's kind of like that hard love, kind of building off what Miriam said in terms of, you know, Abuela left to come to this new land and build this home. And for her, family is everything. And this notion of perfection is also everything because at the end of the day, perhaps that's only what Abuela can control, mm. right? Is the perfection of her household and what the family can do. 
right? Um, so when Mirabelle is not able to produce a gift or something like that, it's kind of almost like a self-reflection on the person of what did I do wrong mm-hmm. in order for this to happen or what's going on? What can I no longer control? And I think it's this notion of control and fear but also love that's still there because at the end of the day, it's not a villain um, figure because it's the grandmother and the granddaughter, right? There's still that connection and relationship that's there. So I think by not unpacking that relationship and looking at through those lenses um, and solely as what we're accustomed to a protagonist and an antagonist, right? We miss those dynamics. I really like what you said there. Trauma and be and being dispossessed from your home and being dislocated from your home and being removed from your home forcibly through violence is is a loss of control. Mm. Um, I like how you said that. For me, Aweda is someone who has not processed her trauma, who has not healed, mm. and hurt people hurt. Mm-hmm. And they pass along this trauma. That's why it's intergenerational trauma. It's unprocessed. It gets passed down in our bodies in our minds, in our feelings, and how we hold ourselves and how we live our lives. Because Abuela wasn't trying to hold on to this miracle or power because she, or to get power. Like she was trying to build up her community. She was trying to build her family. She used all those gifts to, to serve that community. Mm. So I think when she saw that uh, Abuela see, thinking, maybe this is the end, maybe mm. we are not going to survive. Maybe something else is going to happen because when you have, lived through a trauma and this unthinkable fear, you can't stop from thinking about what's coming next. Mm. What am I going to have to live through next? Mm. And you kind of pass that on, right? You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, Abuela needs needs to heal from that trauma. Her children need to heal from this trauma. Is Abuela toxic? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Does that mean she doesn't love Mirabel? No. <laughs> It's it's not that simple. We need to have more nuance. And I think trauma allows us to see that those dynamics, you know, um, to think through some of these things. Um, and I think the only reason we couldn't mm-hmm. think think outside of that box is because people who were reviewing that movie weren't coming at it from a lens of trauma because they haven't experienced that trauma. So I guess my question as well is, you know, so Abuela is trying to hold on. She's trying to control things. She's lived through this harrowing experience, saw her husband get shot down. And that scene in the movie, holy crap, I felt like I was punched in the gut. I was like, oh, my God, this is too much. What? And, you know, I can't even talk about it without tearing up right now. Um, But but then she holds on and her children are holding on and trying to maintain this facade. Uh, Mirabelle's mom is pushing back a little bit. Her, 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 her grandchildren, um, they feel a little bit more free, but still they're holding on except for Mirabelle, right? So why do you think it had to be in this generation, i.e. Mirabelle's generation, why were they the ones who were able to kind of push back a little bit? Why couldn't, you know, Abuela's children push back? I feel like even still, even within the younger generation, right? Like if we look at Luisa, Mm. right? That notion of pressure, that notion that they have because of being the eldest sibling or one of the eldest siblings, that they have to take on a lot of responsibility, right? Perhaps it's more so that distance Mm. from the initial trauma, right? That allows them to foster up more courage in order to like speak up, right? Um, And I think when we look at it and we apply like this movie and these dynamics to like our own families, I, you know, the same thing, right? Like 
I'm definitely, I definitely saw myself more in Louisa and Isabella, Mm. this notion of, I have to, you know, do X, Y, and Z in order to succeed. Um, because if not, then I'm a disappointment to my family, right? My family's done so much. They've, you know, as migrants, they come here. So you have to equally be able to kind of carry on this legacy of, you know, maintaining some type of success. Right. Whereas I can definitely see it in like, um, my younger cousins that are really disassociated with the migration story. Right. It's still the same level of burden, but perhaps their reactions to the initial trauma isn't as there, but I think the older generation, even within the kids still feel that they need to be careful with what types of decisions and steps they make because they don't want to um, make the family upset. I think uh, I think experiencing trauma teaches you that survival is in the collective. It, survival mm-hmm. is not an individual thing. The only way to survive mm-hmm. is through doing your part to ensure the collective good. I think mm-hmm. trauma really, really hammers down this, this, um, this lesson. We learn this lesson, like I said, mentally, emotionally, but we learn it in our bodies too. So I mm-hmm. think that, um, you know, like we said, Abuela is still living in that fear and that survival mode. She's not thinking about processing and moving on because to her, it's still, it might still happen. Do you see that in, yep. the, in her generation of children who are so close to that trauma still, like Natasha said, who are like that? You even see it in the next generation through Isabel and Luisa mm. until Maribel. And I actually, when I watched the movie and thought, uh, right from the beginning, when she they kept, they kept saying she didn't have a gift, I kept thinking, but she does. She does. Just watch. She does. The entire movie, she's showing us her gift. She gets them to talk. Mm. She plays the role of mediator. She gets them to be brave when they don't feel brave. She's the one who gets um, Antonia out of from under the bed right in the beginning. Yeah. She's the one who goes and finds Bruno to get him to kind of actually process some of what he was feeling uh, about seeing that um, that vision. Um, and I think the entire time she's showing us that maybe it's because she's the youngest. Maybe it's because she was mm. uh, born without the burden of this gift, like Natasha was saying, where the other ones who thought I've been blessed with this gift now, in order to show my gratitude, I have to live up to this gift. And in us, that meant going to universities, making all of my parents' sacrifices worthwhile because they gave up a lot to get here. They literally gave mm-hmm. up everything for me. They've done everything for me. My mom made sure I mm-hmm. ate before she ate, even if that meant not that much was left for her. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that kind of sacrifice demands that you live up to that, whether that's toxic or not, whether that's dysfunctional or not, right? It's not our parents making us feel that way. It's us feeling that way just due to our circumstances. And so I mm-hmm. think like Mirabelle didn't have this gift and this pressure to live up to like the other two. And in her interactions with her siblings, because her personality is more like mediator and talkative, she really listens to them and she sees that they're Mm. suffocating under these gifts. And Mm -hmm. that's what actually makes her tear this place down. It wasn't just her being fed up with Abuela and how she was treating her, actually. It was the whole Mm -hmm. solo numbers where she saw how Luisa was 
crumbling under this pressure and how Isabel's not as annoying as she always thought she was, but she like <laughs> was doing something she didn't even want to do <laughs> just to maintain this family structure, right? And so I think she, I think in when she like really just makes everything collapse around her, it was her just, you know, I don't, I don't know that I see it as her standing up to a widow or confronting her so much as saying, look, we've all been through a lot, but this needs to end. Survival mode has to end at some point. We're fine now, but we are not fine because we're suffocating mm. under this and we need to find a better way. She is holding a, a mm -hmm. accountable there. She's telling her we need to do things differently. Mm -hmm. But even as she listens and see something from Abuela's eyes at the river and, and thinks that is an unspeakable horror that I didn't live through. And she finally understands what it's like to be Abuela, who's that scared. Mm -hmm. In my mind, every generation gets a little less scared, a little mm. less fearful, and a little more brave, a little more free, less shackled by this weight of this pressure to constantly make it worthwhile. Because that's really the migration story, right? Is we always have to make it worthwhile. Otherwise, what the hell did we sacrifice all this, all this for? This is, after all, a podcast on academia. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> called Academic Aunties for a reason. And as I as I was watching the movie, um, one thing that struck me was, you know, in the different worlds and in the different circles that I travel in as an academic, I never, I never really want to talk about family. I never really want to talk about how even my research is also still informed by like family history uh, because academia presupposes that we're all kind of like objective brains in a jar, right? <laughs> that a lot of this stuff that informs our research, a lot of that is irrelevant. Um, and I was wondering, you know, have you had the same pressures to kind of hide that part of her history, hide that part of her family lives um, in order to be seen as valid. I think the only time where I felt open enough to discuss um, what in relation to whatever topic we were discussing in class, for example, I think it was only in your class. Level. <laughs> it took me what four years of undergrad, my master's, other maybe five plus years in order to have a space where oral histories was considered valid and rigorous um, in relation to talking about when we were talking about migration diaspora, right? Everywhere else, as much as, you know, I'm all for incorporating, um, you know, personal anecdotes in relation to like my family's experiences because their experience of migrating has informed, it's my research, right? Like I, I am informed by their experiences their trauma their sacrifices everything and i try my best to always um portray that in my work but it's never i i never feel comfortable enough um talking about it in various spaces because i deem it not to be rigorous 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that as well, because um, Empty Miriam, you fought a lot of battles, you know, um, in order to be read as legible in the field of IR, right? What are some of these battles and how have you tried to carve that space to show actually like my family, my community's history should form the foundation for how we're studying and engaging with some of these political questions? Even from my undergrad, I noticed that um, it was, it was not that I had the vocab the vocabulary for this in my underground, mind you. Okay, so I didn't have the vocabulary, but I saw that it was people like me who had stories to tell, and people like white cis het men who theorized these stories and made them into rigorous scientific, objective, neutral knowledge. And academia was trying to kind of make me less me and more, you know, that in order to take what I know to make it rigorous. Mm. But going through academia, especially through the PhD and after, I realized my lived experiences, my knowledge is knowledge. I already came to that classroom with knowledge, with knowledge of where I come from, of where I come from before it was called Iraq, of our relationship to each other, to that land, before it was what it is today. Even, even something mm -hmm. like migration, we think about migration as, as, you know, either that trek or as when people get here, and that's how we analyze it, but mm -hmm. actually, Migration happens way before that. Migration mm. happens when all of these very strategic, very on, very purposeful, very systemic things, structural things happen to remove me from my land, to turn me into a refugee or an internally displaced person, all these categories, right? To turn me into an immigrant, a settler, uh, a newcomer, right? And then, and then to start thinking about me in the diaspora. And we really need to think about how all of this is interconnected with all these other structures of empire, of colonialism, of, you know, heteronormative patriarchy, of racial capitalism. That's migration way before I actually mm -hmm. got here, right? My story started way before mm -hmm. that. Uh, and so I really think mm -hmm. we do a disservice to our fields. Uh, when I try to say that, you know, international relations isn't just about states, lots of people have said that. But I'm trying to say that if you, from my lived experiences as an Assyrian, that lived experience, this community will tell us something really important about how empire has functioned somewhere else, across a different time, a different space, and and all of these are interconnected and they're intertwined. They're not separate. That's how I came to be a settler in Canada. And so mm -hmm. I think, um, I really do think academia tries to turn us into this, you know, objective person when in fact, that's actually a lie that we tell and it does a, a really huge disservice. How much richer would our analysis be if we actually, you know, took to heart 
these various moments of family history, these various um, moments of, of how the empire, as Auntie Miriam was saying, <laughs> uh, was created, right? Um, and I also think kind of linking back to Encanto and how a lot of these negative reviews were actually written by like, based on their bylines, these white dudes <laughs> who are like looking for like a superhero movie. You know, I'm more inclined to listen to critiques from people who are aware and have lived through that family history and mm -hmm. that kind of experience, right? Because there yeah. are a lot of critiques to be had. So I'd rather listen to those critiques Absolutely. than, you know, the white guy who's like, well, is, is Mirabel the hero? Like, I, you know, it's just like a really like crass understanding. Oh no, my movie. favorite was, is she like Cinderella? No! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Like you really can't, relate to a character unless it fits into your frame of reference when you have to kind of equate Maribel to Cinderella. Cinderella? God. I mean, come on I now. I saw that. One of the reviewers saw that. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, because not all... There are some people who will watch this movie who have had these lived experiences who will say, I cannot get over a witness toxicity. Mm -hmm. And that's because of where they are in their situation, in their life, in their healing journey, in their life trauma of not, of not, of not being able to let go of that hurt or somebody else who's working on their trauma, processing it is learning. You know what? Hurt people hurt. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that doesn't mean that a way that shouldn't be held accountable, which I think mm -hmm. she is for me in the movie, she does get held accountable by Mirabel. But I think it's also kind of, focusing on a compa on compassion as a response as saying hey what needs to heal she needs to process this and heal so the rest of us can do the same i think what this movie really shows is that toxicity is not okay but it happens mm -hmm. it's and that dysfunctional and having such a dysfunctional family it's not that it's just okay like that but that it exists mm -hmm. like it happens in my circle it happens in your circle because it's such a universal concept and because a lot of folks from different regions were able to relate and understand this um it shows that you know you're not alone in experiencing what you're experiencing um wherever you stand in this generational line mm -hmm. of um family relationships but that um and hopefully as the movie showed right like there eventually does get better mm -hmm. For sure. And I think, honestly, it is a Disney movie, right? Like, I feel like there's been so many conversations, even within the Filipino community, um, about how, you know, some of the critiques, and I'm completely sympathetic with that, um, a lot of the critiques say, well, you know, you we, we forget how a lot of these intergenerational family structures are super conservative, right? How a lot of them actually, um, you know, trap people into these roles, right? And I'm not negating that. Like, absolutely, gosh, you know, I, I could I could spill, like, family tea, but I'm not going to. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, as Tia Natasha says, it's a Disney movie. They can't, like, portray this, <laughs> you know. It, you know, it's not, at the end of the day, there has to still be a happy ending. I think what, I think when, I think when I hear, like, especially, like, people not from my community who talk about, like, how maybe my community is, conservative or toxic or our family dynamics or whatever i heard a lot of this growing up in terms of like um even like friends like if i wasn't allowed to do something or uh whatever they would be like oh my god right but i also think that that is also coming from a place of 
judgment and a mm. place of unfair judgment at that because it's not like you know families in Canada or white families or whatever uh, don't have these dynamics as well, right? This is not a black and white kind of thing. It's mostly I what I liked about it is that toxicity is not like a destination. All of us have the ability to be to behave in ways that are toxic and dysfunctional, and we all have the ability to behave in ways that are not. And to make it seem like this family all was just toxicity is super unfair. And also take remove from their context. I think I think the circumstances uh, that Aweda had to live through and to make decisions in were extremely constraining themselves. These structures were constraining too. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost thinking, I mean, not to kind of dive deep into like family history, right? But like growing up, I wasn't really allowed to go on sleepovers. And some of my friends were like, oh my God, your parents are so strict. And I'm just like, you know, and back then I was like, oh my gosh, why am I not allowed to go on a sleepover? They're not going to kidnap me, for God's sake. Like, stop being so restrictive. But you know, looking at these moments with the benefit of hindsight, I'm like, well, think about it, right? Um, you know, my parents don't know the families inviting me, right? Like, you know, they need to be familiar with them first. Um, and also, you know, sleepovers weren't really something that they did growing up either. So, you know, divorce from context, it seems super draconian, super strict. But if you understand kind of lived experiences and histories, then what my parents decided made sense. My, my parents were the same way because they couldn't let me out of their sight. Mm -hmm. Like my mom's anxiety would go through the roof if I had, if I had, um, you know, like I remember grade seven or was it grade seven where they like go to camp for three days. Okay. I was not allowed to participate in this. <laughs> Obviously. No, but literally, I, and I was really mad at the time. You know, as I, as I got older, I understood that m my parents had done so much to ensure that I lived, yeah. that they couldn't fathom losing me to something like camp. <laughs> like to them, literally to them, they were like, oh, I made sure you survived through war. <laughs> like, I can't lose you to something as like, as inconsequential as camp. <laughs> Final question, and it'll be fun. Um, so the Madrigal family has a lot of superpowers. What superpower would you like to have um, if you could have that? And don't say you want to be a mediator like Mirabelle, although that's the best superpower, obviously, right? Like she, she you know, leads the family to a journey of healing. But what would be your superpower if you could have it and why? I think... Um it's going to sound bad, but I would love to be Dolores where I can hear everything. <laughs> I love that so much. So in Spanish, like we have this word called chismosa, yep. right? That just means like, you know, you're into like the gospel, you hear these things, right? And um, it's funny because as much as we make fun of like this character at the same time, you know, it's, she's just so funny. She knows everything. She knew Bruno was like still yeah. in the house without everyone else knowing that. Right. So just having this insider scoop, I think, I don't know. I, I like Dolores's thing. I mean, it's not the best portrait to have, but I think it's interesting. Um, yeah, For sure. I, you know what? No, yeah. Knowledge is power. <laughs> so I think I would want, but not to use it the way she did, because I was super constraining, but I would want the ability to like, um, kind of like be part of nature and grow things like mm. Isabel. 
Mm. Like I know she only used it to grow flowers and that was super boring, but like, I just can't help but um, uh, just want to be that kind of like, feel have that relationship with nature and just grow things. Mm-hmm. I think that's incredible. That's what I would want to do. What about you, Ethel? Bruno. You know, now we're talking about Bruno. I want to be able to see. Bruno, see the future. Yeah, I want to see the future. I want to see. I want to see what's going to happen next year. Are we going to be done with COVID? I mean, obviously, like you know, he he sees it in visions, right? But that would be amazing. Um, You'll have to interpret those visions. I know. I know. And usually, Bruno was scared because his visions would come out. I know. Really bad. <laughs> so let's cross for a better. <laughs> Well, thank you both so, so much uh, for being part of this conversation. If any of our listeners want to follow you on social media, do you want to drop your social media handles? I am on Twitter. I'm just, uh, I think my handle is Miriam Georges. And mine's at NathiSophia underscore. Nathi with a Y. Awesome. Well, thank you both again so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Academic Aunties. You know, we have such a great time putting this podcast together for you, and we hope you love listening to it as much as we love making it. If you're looking for ways to support Academic Aunties, please check out academicaunties.com slash support. That's academicaunties.com slash support. We've put together a list of various ways to support the podcast, which I hope you'll consider. We also now have Academic Auntie swag, including stickers, hoodies, mugs, and other fun stuff. Go check out our website. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter. Follow us at, at Academic Auntie. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.